The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well done, everybody. You're nearly there. It's Friday, so let's give you some headlines right here on Scorebox. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden unveils his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill, including direct payments to Americans and speeding up vaccinations in a bid to get the economy back on track. Our rescue and recovery plan is a path forward with both seriousness of purpose and a clear plan with transparency and accountability with a call for unity that is equally necessary. We have though got US futures trading in the red. Uh, This also despite Jerome Powell seeking to allay fears that the Fed could be set to wind down asset purchases this year. Also saying rates would stay lower for longer. When the time comes to raise interest rates, uh, you know, we'll we'll certainly do that. And that time, by the way, is, is no time soon. German Chancellor Angela Merkel considers a mega lockdown, including suspending public transportation, as the country sees record coronavirus deaths. SAP says it expects flat to modest revenue growth and a slide in operating profit this year, despite witnessing a recovery in the fourth quarter. The Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte looks for allies in unlikely places as he tries to shore up his government. As Elena Bonetti, one of the ministers who resigned, tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that it was done for the greater good. This is the time for politics, because we still believe that politics is the answer to moments of crisis. We resigned because we did not want to be complicit in this lack of transparency. going to say one thing before I, I carry on with the reads now, and it reminds me so much of 2009-2021 in the fact that when Obama came in, straight away there was a, a recovery act that he needed to get through. Uh, and it just seems to me very similar, like 12 years later, that here we have US President-elect Joe Biden and has now unveiled a massive, massive new stimulus package worth $1.9 trillion. $1.9 trillion dollars. Now, the plan includes new relief checks to some individuals, in addition to an earlier round of payments included in federal spending measures last month. State and local governments would also receive $350 billion in aid, while a scheme providing $400 a week in unemployment benefits will be extended until the end of September. In an evening address, Biden said his plan will help bring Americans who have been struggling with the pandemic back on course. Our rescue plan also includes immediate relief to Americans hardest hit and most in need. We will finish the job of getting a total of $2,000 in cash relief to people who need it the most. The $600 already appropriated is simply not enough. You just have to choose between paying rent and putting food on the table. Uh, Mr. Biden also vowed to accelerate the country's coronavirus vaccination program. The vaccine rollout in the United States has been a dismal failure thus far. Tomorrow, I will lay out our vaccination plan to correct course and meet our goal of one 
100 million shots at the end of my first 100 days as president. This will be one of the most challenging operational efforts we have ever undertaken as a nation. We'll have to move heaven and earth to get more people vaccinated, to create more places for them to get vaccinated, to mobilize more medical teams to get shots in people's arms, to increase vaccine supply, and to get it out the door as fast as possible. I'll just add in one more thing as well. I mean, thank goodness, at long last, they're talking about potentially getting the minimum wage at a federal level up to 15 bucks an hour. Tell me one of you out there who can survive on the current level of 7.25 an hour. Yeah, I didn't think so. Right, let's have a look at the US futures as well and see where we're trading there. So they are lower uh, across the board. Elsewhere, though, uh, the BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, said he expects widespread vaccinations to boost markets in the second half of 2021. Speaking to CNBC, Mr. Fink also urged Biden to lower political tensions and reach out to US allies abroad. This is going to be one of the most important components for the new administration coming in to try to find ways of bringing bringing more harmony, and then more importantly, or just as importantly, is making sure that we begin a true multilateralism back into the world again so we could bring down not only the tension here in the United States, but bringing down the global tensions that that have persisted for some time. We also had some important comments from the head of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, ultimately telling the markets that interest rates will go up eventually, and the Fed will begin slowing its bond buying program. But he added that these moves will not happen in the near term as policymakers look to continue supporting the American recovery. It's not the time to be talking about exit. I think that another lesson of the, uh, of the global financial crisis is be careful not to exit too early. And by the way, don't try not to talk about exit all the time if you're not, you know, if you're sending that signal because the markets are listening. The economy is far from our goals. And if you want a little bit more Fed speak, our colleagues in the United States will be speaking later on to the Boston Fed President, Eric Rosengren. That interview is 1900 CET. Meanwhile, U.S. weekly jobless claims spiked to 965,000 last week. That was worse than forecast and hits the highest point since August. The surging claims comes amid signs of a slowdown in the jobs market as states increase their virus restrictions, Karen. Well, Jeff, a weaker backdrop on the data, typically positive for these markets as we talk about more stimulus, how accommodative the Fed will remain, uh, the stimulus coming through from Capitol Hill that uh, Joe Biden uh, fleshed out yesterday. But uh, the market's in session on somewhat of a, a, a journey. We did see some record levels intraday uh, first up uh, on uh, the likes of the Dow and some of the other major indices. However, the give-back trade then happened uh, a little bit of by the... Uh, Rumours sell the fact uh, oh, tr- playing out in sessions, investors uh, just turned cautious later on in session. Uh, we had a, a dovish commentary f- from Powell as well, but really not doing much to support stocks at this uh, stage. You can see off two tenths of a percent on the Dow. Keep in mind, we do have uh, the start of earnings season later on today as some of the major banks uh, like JP Morgan, City, Wells Fargo start to report. And uh, investors looking to see what happens with those credit reserves and buybacks uh, along with guidance for investors. So a fairly important report card later on today. Let's just switch over and take a look at this uh, NASDAQ trade and the big technology names that haven't done much so far this year. What we've got on some of these big social media companies, a resumption of the selling 2.3 odd percent of Facebook, Twitter down 
3% at the other end. And uh, that's what we've witnessed in recent sessions. Just a little bit of softness around concerns about further regulation coming into the mix for these companies. But across the board, it was a weaker trade. Amazon down 1.2%. Treasuries, as we saw the detail around uh, Joe Biden's plan uh, for spending across the economy, big infrastructure spending, individual checks. Uh, we did see this 10-year yield tick up a little bit on inflationary uh, concerns or just repricing of this reflationary trade. 1.12% we got to, but we've drifted off those levels again and we're back around the 1.10% mark uh, in the early trading session. And let's see what that means for the dollar, which uh, has very much travelled with the yield story. We've seen that rebound uh, off the lows, uh, the three-year low we'd written, witnessed uh, in uh, some of the earlier sessions, and dollar has climbed well and truly off those levels but this morning what we're looking at a dollar regrouping versus sterling uh, 136.78 this morning also trading firmer versus the euro on the back foot versus the japanese yen 103.76 where we're trading and a little bit weaker versus the chinese currency jeff karen wasn't it remarkable the 10-year we we have that announcement of another 1.9 trillion stimulus as steve was mentioning there and the Yields, quite frankly, barely moved. I don't know what's happened to James Carville's bond market vigilantes, but they basically must be hibernating at this stage. But we've got a guest coming up who may have some opinions on that. Let me also just mention the fact that we do plunge into earnings season in earnest uh, this Friday. U.S. earnings season kicks off when J.P. Morgan and Citigroup publish their fourth quarter results. Investors and analysts will be expecting credit loss provisions to continue to fall after a substantial decrease in the third quarter. Share buyback strategies are also set to be a key focus after the Fed relaxed rules last month. Well, David Newhouser joins us from Livermore Partners, where he's managing director. David, good to have you with us. I actually quoted one of your pieces earlier in the week when we were talking about market conditions. And I think you'd use the line about unicorns and fairy tales if you don't think we are in a bubble at this point. But when you listened to Jay Powell yesterday, you didn't get the sense that there is any desire at this point, at least from the Fed, to prick this asset market bubble. Yeah, Jeff, I don't I don't think you're seeing that out of, out of Powell today. I think he's more focused on, you know, making sure there's uh, longevity to this economic cycle that they're trying to come from in terms of the depths of March with coronavirus to where we are today to where they expect us to be, you know, a year from now. So I think he's trying to be extremely cautious in terms of upsetting the markets. And uh, that's something I think you're going to see consistently from the Fed. Let me just um, push back on the premise for a moment, because I know you do think these markets look bubbly when you take on board the valuations. But the fact that we've barely got a move uh, in the Treasury yield on the back of uh, Joe Biden talking about another nearly $2 trillion thrown at the U.S. economy. What does that tell us about the um, the bond market's resistance to further borrowing and support that will inevitably push up um, asset prices even further? Yeah, I think what's interesting is the the two issues, you know, the two areas you look at, right? You look at the long duration uh, the bonds, which obviously yield has has come up. So when you look at it from the standpoint of where bonds were at 60 bips not too long ago to 112 bips where they are today, that shows that there's been a substantial move up and a substantial steepening, which is, of course, helping banks. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, you're seeing other factors like the market's hitting highs consistently and more and more stimulus being fed into the market. So I think there's there's a number of factors taking hold today and the market's trying to figure out which uh, narrative that they should go with. And for the past nine months, almost in a straight line, it's been uh, it's been up in terms of equity markets. I think what ends up happening is, you know, will uh, so much be built into the market and will eventually we start to see factors of inflation take hold. And those are the things I think that ultimately pop the epic bubble. David, uh, we heard from Joe Biden yesterday talking about the, the haste required to bring people back into the workforce and provide stimulus and support at this point. Uh, your research, you're comparing this uh, spending plan and getting people back into the workforce quickly to the 1920s, uh, which uh, led to the 1929 market crash. Should we be concerned about an event like that on the back of these policies? You know, I think so, because like I said, my my reference to you guys was that, you know, you had the destruction of World War One lead into the Roaring Twenties. And then, of course, what happened in the Roaring Twenties, what led after that was, of course, the 1929 stock market crash and the Great Depression. So I think you got to be careful what you wish for. So you're seeing this massive, uh, you know, trillion dollar deficit spending uh, due to a pandemic that has, of course, stopped uh, the world uh, in the past nine months. And the goals, of course, are, you know, we're going to get vaccine. We're going to come through this. We still don't know the dynamics as to how fast and swiftly we come through this. We also don't know what global growth will look like in the future years, too. So, you know, the anticipation is we'll have GDP growth come up to, you know, six, six and a half percent for 21. But I think if you start to look beyond that, you know, you're going to see more normalization of, of GDP growth of three percent and back down to two and a half percent. And you have an aging demographic here in the U.S., so I have a hard time thinking that even with all the uh, the stimulus that you're seeing in this system, that it's going to lead to consistent uh, steady growth. And instead, I think what you'll find is we'll have uh, you know large growth maybe in 21, but then start to see subdued growth. And then eating that with the fact that you have so much debt, uh, both in the corporate and and with government, it's going to be a, a tough road ahead, I believe. David, what's the role of technology, though? Because we have seen that as a standalone growth story, even during some of the more challenging economic conditions and technology, very much a big feature of the market, even at this point with uh, some very strong valuations. How does technology, though, support the economy, even if you think that there could be some sort of bubble bursting scenario down the track? You know, well, that's interesting. So, you know, for a long time, I've been I've been. Uh, you know, proponents saying that, you know, tech valuations have been stretched. And I think what COVID did is it sort of changed the game where it extended uh, the runway for uh, valuations to be, you know, extremely extended where they're at today. But I also think there's a lot of positives that come from technology, of course, as we've been seeing uh, during the pandemic, right? We're seeing the efficiency technology and the lower cost and things like that. But um, overall, I think there's a number of factors going on today you know, whether uh, social media uh, companies that have seen substantial growth over the past, you know, five to eight years are now in a political theater uh, with privacy and First Amendment rights colliding. And there's a number of factors, I think, that could eat into those business models. So I think today with with uh, uh, low to you know zero nominal rates where they're at today, you're seeing these high valuations from tech. I'm curious to see what ultimately happens uh, when we see sort of the reopening of the world and uh, and steep, even more steepening yield curve, what that means to valuation.
David, very good morning to you. Uh, the most recent inflation this week was very tame, 1.4%. But we get the base effects from the oil rally from next month as well. Uh, plus, you have concerns that if we go 3% plus, the market is going to take an absolute bath. It's actually going to crash 20% down plus. But there's a long way between 14 and 3% as well. Is there a middle ground where the market falls in a gently rising inflationary environment, David? You know, that's hard to say. I mean, the way I look at it is once you've seen the Fed really dictate the path to inflation, meaning, you know, they are very much willing to let the inflation, uh, you know, inflation run extremely hot. So you just don't know how long uh, they would let it run. Would they let it run substantially above, say, 2.3, 2.5% and ultimately get that 3% inflation rate? And for how long? And at some point, they're, the rubber is going to hit the road there and they're going to have to figure out that they're going to have to start raising rates. So, you know, one, one and a quarter percent uh, treasury yield doesn't mean much. But when you start to see an inflation rate that's three percent, potentially going up to five percent or 10 percent, it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle uh, with inflation. And ultimately, I think you have a higher chance that you can actually see stagflation where we see subpar growth, but yet we do see increased prices. And, and some of that's COVID uh, due to COVID, meaning you've seen this lack of supply and you've seen increased demand and you've had lack of investment for a lot of different commodities over the past years. When you look at oil recently, when you look at commodities in terms of copper and iron ore, and that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a number of those prices hit you know, uh, highs, uh, LNG, for example, and front month LNG was over $20 a cargo recently, too. So commodities are telling you something. And, you know, with Livermore, that's where we're focused in terms of looking at small cap value. And, you know, that's where we've done well. David, we'll have a, another conversation on another day. Very nice to see you today. So thank you very much indeed. Chicago time. What are you? Are you one o'clock in the morning? Uh, we're just after 12 midnight. So uh, new day. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed. For, it's probably not late for you, actually. You're probably up all night anyway. Uh, David, thank you very much indeed for that. David Newhauser, who is the Managing Director, Livermore Partners. It never fails to amaze me how our US guests, you know, between one, two, three in the morning, they're all still happy to be well, up. Well, there's a lot happening. I mean, look at the news flow at the moment. It's just oh, been incredible around is, politics. So we're just about to start earning a season. I've plenty to stay up for. We are very lucky to have them. Um, good. Right. Thank you. Let's move on. Uh, coming up on the show, Italy's Prime Minister begins the process of rebuilding his coalition government. We're going to hear actually from one of the ministers whose resignation plunged the country into fresh political turmoil. turmoil uh, that's an exclusive interview with the former Minister for Family, Elena Bonetti, uh, next on CNBC. And for more on President-elect Biden's fresh stimulus proposals, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has called an emergency cabinet meeting for this morning where the government will discuss whether to collectively resign over a childcare subsidy scandal. 
A parliamentary report has blamed several government ministers for the mismanagement of a scheme that saw families wrongly forced to repay subsidies. Wuta has been in power since 2010, but his party is performing strongly in opinion polls ahead of a general election in March. We'll try and talk about this later. I think it's extraordinary that one of the most set in stone, reliable politicians in Europe has found himself slipping on something so domestic rather than coronavirus or some international... Anyway, we'll come back to this later on, maybe. Uh, the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti insists he will not resign after the withdrawal of the coalition party Italia Viva stripped his government of a parliamentary majority. The Prime Minister will instead look to find support from opposition lawmakers to keep the administration intact. Conte will face a vote of confidence on Monday, and if he wins will begin piecing together a majority on Tuesday. Italia Viva's decision to destabilise the government amid the pandemic drew anger in Italy, as critics argued now is not the moment for politics. Speaking exclusively to CNBC, Italia Viva's former minister for family is Elena Bonetti, whose resignation, of course, led to the loss of the majority. She pushed back saying that politics is a solution. This is the time for politics because we still believe that politics is the answer to moments of crisis. Politics is a service to the women and men of this country. Politics is the way to give answers and solutions to issues. The problem is when politics doesn't behave in this way, when politics becomes organization without vision, when it doesn't see or listen. While in government, Italia Viva was a voice criticizing the fact that during a crucial moment, the real solution should have been a democratic process instead of last-minute provisions, given often with no explanation. These provisions were improvised, sometimes made without real awareness and made without involving Italian society. In a moment of emergency like this one, this is the moment for democracy, not its delegitimization. Democracy and politics are the embodiment of our community, and that is precisely what we need more of today. With that in mind, have you completely ruled out working with another Conte government, or are you still open to the idea if there are some concessions granted to your party? We resigned because we did not want to be complicit in this government's lack of transparency. We believe a government is motivated when it is able to act concretely and give its country the solutions it needs. The issue of the plans for the EU funds is very important to us. There are doubts over whether we should use the ESM funds, but we believe we should be using those today. These are investments that our country needs and for which we want to hold an open conversation. The use of the EU recovery funds will redesign Italy and Europe for the next 30 years. When deciding what kind of future we want, we must give a clear, rational, shared path instead of many disconnected actions. If we only respond to the issues of today, we do not create a better future for the generations that this money belongs to. We are willing to have an open dialogue about this. After that, you choose the people. We asked our allies many times to build this shared vision, and that request was consistently put off until the moment that postponing was no longer an option. Today is the time to offer solutions, not delays. Would you be willing to work with other opposition parties uh, to get back into government again? 
We have said that solutions should be found within an institutional process. We believe that politics must return to be at the heart of institutions. What we are unwilling to do is forge an alliance with a populist, anti-European, right-wing government, just as we were when we were in the government. We believe that we must place the future prospects of Italy firmly within a European context, so there will be no populist or anti-European choices made. Italy's political uncertainty will continue next year as the country holds its presidential elections, with the former ECB chief Mario Draghi being floated as a potential candidate. Asked whether she saw him as a good fit for the job, Bonetti said the continent owes Draghi a debt of gratitude. Mario Draghi has proven himself an incredible resource for all of Europe. The decisive action he took allowed Europe to now find itself in a position to have these recovery funds available when we needed them in a moment of dramatic crisis. Without these actions, we would not have a Europe that is able to take on the responsibilities that it has today. So Mario Draghi is a great resource for our country as well. Now, as far as electing a president of the republic, those scenarios do not involve me. I'm not a member of parliament, I'm a university professor. But, of course, he has rendered great service to Italy, and I'm sure that he will continue to do so in whatever capacity he finds himself. So, Mr. Renzi himself, uh, the former prime minister, of course, says does not believe uh, that the current prime minister, Giuseppe Conti, will win the confidence vote. Says he himself, Mr. Renzi, will abstain. And that's according to Renzi speaking to La Stampa, reported on Reuters now. Um, Jeff Cannon, I'm just going to say broadly, you've got an economy which... I mean, has grown minimally, if at all, in the last 20 years as well. Crisis after crisis after crisis, plus, along with the UK, some of the worst COVID numbers across the continent of Europe as well. I cannot believe that this is happening to Italy at this time when it was not necessary as well. I, I just can't see the argument from, dare I say, and again, very interesting, listen to Mr. Bonetti, but from Bonetti and Renzi and others, it just seems incredulous at this time. Well, I think Conti thinks he may have the upper hand in that sense, that you've got a pandemic playing out and people do not want a political crisis on top of that. And if you look at uh, Renzi and how he's faring in the court of public opinion, he is not winning. 73% uh, of respondents uh, in an Ipsos poll agree that Renzi was pursuing his own personal interests and those of his party by triggering this crisis. So that is a damning view of by the electorate uh, for a man who may still have big political ambitions. Let's face it, he was asked a little bit earlier than he thought from his own prime ministership, uh, so potentially wants that uh, top job back at some point. Uh, when it comes to Conti, though, uh, I think uh, what we've seen over the last 12 months or so, a crisis that's really papered over the cracks. We thought an era of stability might have been a good thing for Italy, uh, given all the turmoil in recent years. But there's been a lot of griping about the slow progress in his decision making around key infrastructure, around broadband rollout. So uh, it feels as though time is up and just, other players just, I mean, are pulling the pin. Just to come into Jeff now, I, I mean, Renzi knows the places where Conte has to look to find to build a majority. And for someone who is a centre left politician to force Mr Conte to look to the right wing of the Italian political spectrum. That, that seems quite extraordinary that he's forcing Conte into that as well. And, and dare I say, is it selfish or not? I'll just leave that question hanging there, Jeff. 
Yeah, I mean, this, uh, as you point out, this inchoate uh, situation really feels to everybody who's watching externally very indulgent. And I suspect to a lot of Italians as well, it will be perceived that way. And, and to pick up on your point, I think the, the, the fact is that Renzi knows that the prospect of elections fills a lot of Italian parliamentarians with dread. Because as Lorenzo Cadono points out in his uh, very enlightening piece, Five Weddings and a Funeral, the funeral being a fresh election here, the risk of a snap election at this point is that Italians vote in more anti-European politicians, which then raises all sorts of issues about how that 200 billion euro pandemic uh, support fund uh, that the Italians are expecting uh, to get uh, would ultimately be used and how the Eurozone feels about its disbursement in Italy. And that again raises another issue here because the Eurozone finds itself ultimately on the horns of, I, uh, of a dilemma. You've got Italian debt to GDP heading towards 160%, second only to Greece in the Eurozone. And um, here you have a, a situation where um, there is no discipline coming from the bond market ultimately for Italian politicians or the government. Um, what you're seeing is um, the Italians happily issuing debt at this point as well, as they know that the ECB will ultimately underwrite it to preserve the status quo. So no surprises uh, that we see celebrations of, of Mr. Draghi's character because he initially took us down that road of we will do whatever it takes to preserve the stability of the euro. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.